city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. One of the most difficult things for any forensic investigator, and certainly a prosecutor to deal with, is the forensic reconciliation of circumstances, statements, facts, and forensic evidence in cases of homicide where self-defense is asserted. I found myself in that situation when I did the forensic analysis of the Trayvon Martin versus George Zimmerman shooting back in 2014. With us today is one of my favorite friends and forensic experts who's actually a prosecutor and the district attorney of Modoc County, Jordan Funk. Jordan, welcome again to A Thread of Evidence. Ron, thanks for having me. It's good to be here again. And it's so great to have you, and I'm going to give you a little promotion because you're such a popular speaker with our listening audience, and I'm going to turn you into a co-host today, all right? And, all right. And I really want to unpack a couple of uh, self-defense cases uh, that uh, are actually, one's a self-defense case, and, and one's just a clear-cut homicide case that you were involved in up in Modoc County. Let's unpack the bag of our first case. Sure. This is an interesting case because it involved uh, a Vietnam veteran, uh, a guy in his mid-50s, very damaged individual, who was on a little property that he owns near near the outskirts of our town uh, on the other side of a river levee. And he's attacked by a violent parolee who had just been released from state prison, who had a history of psychotic schizophrenic behavior and he's brutally attacked by this much larger man and ends up using lethal force to defend himself and is charged with second degree murder and it's a case that resulted in an acquittal took the jury about 15 minutes they told the accused at the end of the trial after they returned their verdict that it was clear to them the prosecution had nothing to do with uh, him being guilty Uh, he was brought to trial for reasons that were essentially political so it was an interesting case. Well, let's talk about how this case uh, was investigated. Let's talk about the circumstances and then how the case came to the district attorney's office. Yeah, so I was the defense attorney on this case. And what really is interesting to me about this case is the extent to which confirmation bias was present in the investigation. From the outset, there was really a strong emotional and psychological need, I thought, for law enforcement in our little community to have a homicide. Those don't happen up here very often. And when they do happen, uh, you're all over the newspaper. If you're in law enforcement, you're giving interviews, you become very important and very prominent. And it kind of incentivizes, uh, I think, some maybe attention-seeking behavior, if you will, And in this case, there was really 
I thought, a really profound need that law enforcement had for there to be a crime here. Whether there was actually a crime or not, they seemed to need for there to be a crime. I was not the district attorney at the time. I was in private practice, and I was appointed on the case, and uh, uh, that's how it began. Well, you know, it's so interesting that you bring up a couple of issues because it really mirrors a case that I had up in Roseburg, Oregon, which, as you know, is just a little bit north of uh, where you were practicing at the time and, and, and where you're currently the district attorney now. And I had a uh, decorated Vietnam vet. He was about 65 years old and uh, well known in the community, well respected in the community, no criminal history whatsoever and he uh, got involved uh, in in a self-defense shooting where actually a man that he invited onto his property uh, to have dinner who just showed up arbitrarily when he was actually having dinner with other friends uh, this man showed up uh, extremely intoxicated drove up onto the property uh, the man is a good Christian man he, he you know didn't want to let this guy loose back on the street seeing how drunk he was so he invited him for dinner well anyway to make a long story short, during the evening, after the guests had left, this man uh, who told everybody he was armed, and by the way, had several guns inside his camper, as as the investigating uh, investigating officers were to find out, uh, actually attacked this man in the middle of the night, and the man was forced to, to shoot him. Didn't kill him, but seriously injured him, and they turned around and they prosecuted my guy. So I, I totally get the whole confirmation bias. You know, the other thing that I found fascinating about this case as we as we move forward with it is that this is another case where state parole, and this happened in California, your case, uh, dumped a guy, you know, as a transient out into the community, and the guy was apparently a troublemaker, and look what resulted in it. So I'd like you to talk about the issues of how this began. Well, the state parole angle is really interesting because the guy, the parolee, was psychotic he was a schizophrenic he was a large man he had just gotten out of prison for violently assaulting a man beating him nearly to death broke several of the victim's ribs uh black and blue marks all over the victim's face uh the victim in that prior assault was in the hospital for several days this guy eventually gets sent to prison does three or four years in california which is about all you get anymore for an assault, comes back and parole just dumps him in our community. Uh, no mental health services, no, I mean, no nothing. And the reason that my victim took him in, my victim was essentially, uh, well, the accused, was essentially homeless himself, living on a, a, a disability pension from the VA as part of his Vietnam service, very highly decorated Vietnam veteran, but living in this little encampment across the levee. And when this parolee gets paroled here with no place to live, my victim, ultimately the accused, takes him in, provides a camper for him to live in, kind of, kind of shelters and supervises the guy, provides him food, and provides him liquor from time to time, but basically, basically takes care of the guy. And what was really sh shocking about the whole case was the attitude of parole, which is, well, it really brought home to me the, 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 a real flaw in the system. They just dump people back into the community regardless of their potential for harm. And uh, 
leave them to fend for themselves and leave the community to, to more or less fend for themselves. Jordan, let me ask you a question. What year did this case take place in? This case was tried in 2011, I believe. Okay. And, uh, yeah. how, and how close to the passage of Prop 109 was that? This would have been a couple of years before Prop 109. Okay, so they were already heading in that direction. Yeah, I think it was about three years before Prop 109. I think Prop 109 came down in 2014, if I'm remembering correctly. But, you know, just to keep it in context, and I know this happened a little bit before that, uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about Prop 09, 109 in, in, in California and how that's affected the community? And then I want to come back to your guy. Yeah, so California Proposition 109 uh, basically made a whole laundry list of felony crimes uh, no longer eligible for state prison commitments. And uh, it, it also, I think if I'm recalling correctly, altered state parole quite a bit. But the real problem is we just, it makes it much more difficult to send people to prison in California. But people that uh, previously would have gone to prison are now housed in county jails for extended periods of time. Sure. And go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I interrupted you. No, no, no. That's okay. Uh, but I, th I think the point that we're both trying to raise is that Proposition 109 really hasn't turned out to be anything like what what the politicians and, and even some district attorneys, as I recall, sold to the public. And the same thing with Proposition 47. Uh, this has been devastating for state parole, pretty much eviscerated state parole's ability to really enforce the, the conditions of parole on inmates that are released from prison out into society. Right. It's uh, basically what happened was California had to find a solution to prison overcrowding. And so, in my opinion, without any really good empirical evidence that the policy proposal that ultimately became AB 109 would actually work, they just adopted it and hoped it would work and assumed it would work because they had to come up with some sort of solution. In other words, it wasn't an evidence-based proposal at all. It was, it was just an ad hoc legislative proposal to try and solve prison overcrowding. Sure that has created its own set of major problems. And really, if you look at the kinds of sentences that inmates get in other cases or defendants in other states, California is very much on the low end of punishment. So on the one hand, we have a massively large prison population in this state, but we have punishment that is very, very much on the low end. And now, in, on top of having you know fairly non-punitive outcomes in a whole long list of felony cases, people don't go to prison anymore. They get housed in county jail. The state has funneled some money to the counties to try and rehabilitate these individuals. But in my opinion, it's not working. Well, you know, one of the things that is also problematic, and I've got a, a current case right now that, that's a homicide, rape homicide case. I can't mention it because I, I just finished testifying in it. But there was a mental health component in your case of schizophrenic disorder, and uh, there was the same thing in mine with, with, the, uh, with the murderer. So I guess my point is this really hasn't done very much for those prisoners uh, and parolees that have mental health problems because it's very difficult 
uh, for parole to force uh, a treatment plan for these people, except if they are completely non-compliant and repeat offenders and repeatedly non-compliant to put them in one of our state hospitals for the criminally insane. Yeah, and I don't know what the solution is. I really don't, but it's a problem. Well, let's get uh, let's get back to your case and and tell us a little bit about how these two men had a confrontation and, and how that resulted. So, our Vietnam veteran is, uh, I think, late fifties or early sixties, and uh, he's taken this guy in basically sort of mothering him, taking care of this violent parolee. They'd been drinking uh, during the course of the day and processing firewood. And the the parolee just becomes violent. He goes off. He wants alcohol. The victim is telling him, hey, look, we're, we're not going to be, you're not going to be getting any alcohol from me until the work is done, until we get the firewood cut. And the, the parolee attacks the the, this diminutive Vietnam vet, the parolee is about 6'2", 250 pounds, uh, probably in his mid-40s. The Vietnam vet's in his late 50s, early 60s, about 5'6", 150 pounds, and assaults him with fists, beats him up pretty good, bloodies his nose, and then withdraws and is sort of uh, uh, parading around a campfire about 10 feet away from from the victim who as I said, ultimately becomes the accused and is just ranting and threatening to kill him. Well, the victim goes in, gets a shotgun, 20 gauge shotgun, comes out on the little deck next to his camper and tells the man, leave, get off the property. And uh, uh, the the parolee charges him and from a distance of about eight feet while while yelling, I'm going to kill you, the vet discharges his shotgun into the throat of the parolee, killing him instantly. Now, a really, really great fact for the defense was about 100 yards away, there's a teenage gal laying in her bed. It's about 10 o'clock at night. It's dark. She has her window open. She's reading. And she hears the vet, the vet, the Vietnam vet, cry out, get back, get away from me, or I'll shoot you. And then a second later, she hears a gunshot. So that corroborated his claim that he was warning this guy to get away from him and that that warning was made right before he shot the man. And it corroborated that he had been charged by this parolee, physically charged. And then there was really good physical evidence of the beating that had just occurred moments earlier. Blood on the, on the, on the veteran's uh, clothing, uh, swollen nose, uh, dried blood in his nostrils, uh, so we had really good evidence that this was a justifiable shooting. Well, boy, I'll tell you what, I would have loved to have been your expert in this case uh, because you've got so many different things that while you're talking about this just really resonated with me. And, you know, one of the things, is, of course, is the collective knowledge. Okay, so your guys' collective knowledge is that this man had already severely beaten uh, another person not too, uh, you know, long ago from from this particular incident, and then 
your guy had already been beaten by this man and beaten severely of this man. Can you tell me, uh, now you told me that uh, the man that was killed in this case was about 6'2 and pretty hulky guy. You, you describe uh, your defendant in this case as being diminutive. What was the size of your guy? Uh, he was about 5'6, 160 pounds. And uh, he, he a wiry guy, you know, alcoholic, but highly decorated Vietnam vet. He'd been a door gunner in a Huey helicopter. I saw his 201 file. He had a number of, of commendations. Uh, what was interesting, I mean, there were a lot of interesting aspects to the case, but when he was interviewed by law enforcement, he calls 911 after the shooting. He calls 911, I've just shot my friend, get here as quick as you can. Oh my God, he's emotional, that sort of thing. And he's arrested and he gives an interview with law enforcement and he tells them, he says, I hated to do it, he was my friend. Uh, and, and lays out the whole scenario and tells him, and, and he's emotional and he's crying. I mean, it's the kind of interview you would expect from someone who was innocent. There are no inconsistencies in his story. He's emotional. He's full of regret. He articulates in great detail how the shooting occurred, why it happened. And he makes the statement, I feared for my life. I feared for my life. Uh, so he had a great interview of the suspect. The physical evidence co corroborated his claim. And then we had this independent third party witness who was phenomenal. The really interesting story in this case is why was it ever charged? Uh, I think that... You know, I think that's a question that that we all have. I certainly do. Hey, Jordan, let's take a break. And when we come back, I'd like to get into some more of the forensic issues of this case when people assert self-defense in homicide investigations. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli and prosecutor Jordan Funk on a thread of evidence. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com where the conversation never ends. With 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back with Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and one of my favorite co-hosts, and that is the District Attorney of Modoc County, California, Jordan Funk. Jordan, we've been just talking about a 
fascinating homicide case that you had, actually not as a prosecutor, but as a defense, a criminal defense attorney uh, up in Northern California. And I'd like to just continue to unpack that bag. You know, we had talked about the collective knowledge of, uh, of your client at the time, but I also see an issue which we refer to as disparity of force. Yeah, you're telling me that your guy's about 5'6", 160, and the other man who had severely beaten him was 6'2", and more of a hulking type of guy. What was the age difference between the two men? The parolee was about 45, and the Vietnam vet, late 50s, early 60s. Wow, that's really interesting. And we talked about the issue of eminent threat, and that the person is charging at them. And just before we took our break, you were talking about, you know, why did this case ever get prosecuted? And I think you've discussed the issue of implicit bias. Let's go in that direction for a while and talk about how implicit or confirmation bias really screws up police investigations. It's a a fascinating topic because it's something that can happen to all of us, uh, no matter how well-intentioned we are. And I think there's a fine line that you have to to hew to. if you, you've got to sometimes bring a little bit of bias into your work as a prosecutor so that you don't get hoodwinked into believing someone's story about potential innocence that, that isn't the truth. But I think at the same time, you've got to be really, really careful that you're, you're not fooling yourself with regard to what the evidence actually is and what the evidence is actually trying to tell you. In this particular case, the county had a very young prosecutor who really should not have been handling the job. And then you had an interesting dynamic with some of the law enforcement officers involved, and that is that they wanted there to be a homicide. Look, in, the, in some of these small towns, crime is, is low, it's non-existent, and or I shouldn't say non-existent, but violent, serious crime frequently is non-existent. And what I saw in this case is this case made law enforcement very important. We had a helicopter come up from the California Highway Patrol to do an overview of the crime scene. scene. You've got news outlets converging on the small town, interviewing everybody, interviewing law enforcement. And so there's some attention and there's something going on that's very much out of the ordinary. It breaks up the very droll, ordinary routine of small town law enforcement with a big crime. It makes you the center of attention. And to me, that was part of the dynamic that sort of facilitated a, a less than objective, thorough look at the evidence in this case. This case was, go ahead, Ron. No, no, I was gonna say, you know, what's fascinating to me is because, I mean, just on its face, and, and forensically, meaning that there's some evidence here, you've got a man that's beaten up, all right? That's the shooter. The first question that an investigator would ask is, why is this man beaten up? If this man is the suspect, why is he the person that's calling 911? And then during the interview process, how cooperative is this man or is he deceptive? Because ultimately, and I'll speak from the investigator side, is that 
the job of the investigation, we've talked about this many times on, on a thread of evidence, an investigation is a search for the truth. And so ultimately, investigators have to investigate and balance what, you know, facts, information, statements, uh, forensic evidence is exculpatory or innocent as opposed to something that might be inculpatory or is more demonstrative of criminal type behavior and it's a balance and it needs to be balanced properly so i mean i just see all sorts of issues where as an investigator i'd have a lot of questions what was troubling about this case was the suspect uh gave an interview that was just bulletproof i mean it was completely consistent with the physical evidence it was corroborated by the story of this teenage girl laying in her bed 100 yards away uh, it, it was consistent with his own physical injuries. And then the narrative he gave about being attacked, about how the parole just inexplicably went off on him, not only once, but twice. The first time when he pummeled him with fists, and then the second time when he charged him, threatening to kill him. It was completely consistent with this prior assault that sent the parolee to prison. In that case, the parolee had just gone off. He had just lost it, literally with no warning, and had turned on his own friend, and beaten that man so badly that he put him into the hospital for three or four days. Well, this case was a, an exact reenactment of that scenario. Now, the suspect in this in this case, his name was Danny Schultz, vaguely knew about the prior assault, but didn't know the details. So what was astounding was that unbeknownst to him, he's laying out a scenario for law enforcement about how this guy inexplicably and for no reason assaulted him. That's virtually identical with the assault that the parolee committed that got him sent to prison. And yet law enforcement and the district attorney just ignores it all. Uh, I talked to, to retired law enforcement officers, including my investigator in this case, and friends in, in DA's offices, and they all agreed. Well, I had a couple of friends that were defense attorneys that were prior prosecutors, and they were astounded. Uh, how lucky could you be to get a self-defense case like that? Because you're going to get an acquittal. It's a case that never should have been filed. Well, you know, it's interesting because you've got a precipient witness, which is their girl that heard everything. And as an investigator, uh, I would want to spend time on what we call the temporal relationship, that, which means the timing. So the temporal relationship in this girl's testimony between the moment that she hears uh, your client yelling, you know, stop, get back, and the next thing she hears is the report of, of a gun. And, and it happened to be fairly quick from what you're saying, right? Yes. Well, I mean, it, it was yeah. like the slight pause, but, but completely consistent with everything that the suspect was saying. And, and then we had blood spatter evidence that confirmed his story completely. So what law enforcement ended up doing is they had to torture out of the facts a theory of liability that was so incredibly biased and so contrary to the to the known evidence, including the forensic physical evidence, that it got laughed out of the courtroom by the jury. Well, you know, what's, what's very, you know, interesting about that is that they just are not following the fact pattern. I think it has a lot to do with 
you know, maybe what you said, getting that 15 minutes of fame, uh, really having a desire uh, to make this a homicide. But, you know, and I've said this before, and I, I said it and wrote about it uh, in my book, uh, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police. It, it, my first chapter was the Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman case, where they kept trying to shove a square peg into a round hole, and it just wouldn't fit. That is a great analogy. I, I'm not intimately familiar with that case, but when it was happening, it was in the news every day, and I was following it very closely. And to me, as a pretty experienced prosecutor, standing back and looking at the Trayvon Martin case, it was so obviously a case of self-defense, a righteous self-defense. Now, you had to sort of, you had to kind of try and extract the truth from the media coverage. But it was astounding to me that the prosecutors in that case acted in such incredibly bad faith. They didn't care whether the truth was on their side or not. Well, yeah, there was an yeah. Go ahead. I was no, going no, to say, you're right. And I found all sorts of what we refer to as Brady violations in the, in the behavior of the, of the state prosecutor. As a matter of fact, there was talk after the trial that she might even get indicted over these things. In other words, Brady violations meaning concealing exculpatory evidence uh, from the jury. I mean, they, they, and they had a, a judge in that case which, which was just completely Everybody uh, from the prosecutor, the judge, thought that, you know, George Zimmerman just murdered Trayvon Martin. And and the real facts were far from it. I thought that that prosecutor was going to get sanctioned Ah. and disciplined by the state bar. She should have been. And that's a scary case because but for 12 jurors sworn to uphold the law and willing to, to buck the political pressure, you could have had a wrongful conviction there. Uh, that that was a scary case. Well, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. But that's when politics, you know, raises its ugly head and we get a political investigation instead of a forensic one. And, uh, you know, your case with your guy with the mental health issues and the schizophrenic uh, affective disorder and the violence and he had a, a predicate commitment offense with, that you said was almost identical to, to the fact pattern in this case, those are all important things that prosecutors are, I'm let me just say this first detectives need to think about before they even bring it to the prosecutor and you know i've sat in homicide cases in front of you know filing da's many times and i make sure that that da gets every single thing i have on both sides i want him to make an informed decision i what i learned from this case was that not all investigators homicide detectives what have you are are as committed to seeking the truth as we always need to be. And I'm not trying to fault the the investigators in this case, but, but my own defense investigator, who was a retired sheriff and highly experienced homicide investigator, just could not believe this case was being prosecuted because the, the prosecution effort was so completely inconsistent with the truth. It really called into question your sort of faith in the system, faith in the government, because, you know, you want to believe the government is going to try to do the right thing every time. Well, sometimes they don't. And thank goodness for jurors and competent defense attorneys. Absolutely. Did you think it was a training issue with respect to the homicide investigators that were involved in this case? What what did you think it was? 
Uh, no, what I think it was, was uh, you had a very green prosecutor. So you didn't have a prosecutor that could authoritatively tell law enforcement, we don't have it. And then secondly, you had a couple of peace officers that were very much driven by an agenda. And they, they concocted a theory and they just couldn't get it out of their minds. They couldn't seem to confront the idea that they don't have the facts. The lead investigator to this day thinks this guy is guilty. Now, I had him on the witness stand and we had around the campfire where these two guys were residing when the killing occurred, there's two stumps, two logs that are available for, for these guys to sit on. Well, one stump is overturned. There's no blood spatter on the bottom of the stump, but there's blood spatter on the top and the side. And my blood spatter ex- expert gave an absolutely, not, not just plausible, but the only reasonable explanation for how the stump got overturned and for the blood spatter pattern that appeared on the stump. Well, the investigating detective had his own theory. So we brought the stump into court and I said, show us, show us how it happened you've got this theory, demonstrate. Well, he would not get off the witness stand and do the demonstration. Uh, it, it, it was just, there was no scenario, but they concocted one. And then when it came time to really put that scenario out there and prove it up to the jury, they were not willing to do that. But to this day, it's, it's amazing to me that, well, the sheriff of our county and the, the chief of police that investigated the case are convinced the guy was guilty. And I will tell you, it took the jury about 20 minutes to return a not guilty verdict. Several jurors were emotional, they were crying. One juror spoke to my client with the permission of the court and said to the judge, uh, Mr. Schultz, it's apparent to us that you being prosecuted had nothing to do with you being guilty of any crime here. So it was obvious to the jurors that there was a political agenda and so, so you get a 15-minute acquittal. Uh, you got jurors who are sympathetic with the accused, and you people, you have people, you have people in law enforcement that are still so agenda-driven. They just they can't see it for what it is. Well, you know, I think one of the problems is is the investigators can't see the forest through the trees. They're looking at your guy that has a shotgun, and they're looking at the other guy who was unarmed. And they're going, okay, well, this is pretty easy. One guy has a shotgun. The other guy's got nothing. Your guy has to committed murder. And they forget all about the issues of the collective knowledge. The, the knowledge, again, that your guy had, albeit brief and maybe even somewhat vague, that this guy had in his past severely beaten a man. Then he's got the recent collective knowledge that he got the crap beaten out of him. And now he's looking at this younger man by 20 years who's much bigger, much stronger, much faster than him, and our guy, meaning your guy, has already been beaten, and his strength and ability to react, I think physiologically, if not psychologically, was somewhat diminished. And he gives the force warnings, and you've got a temporal relationship between the force warnings and the, the gunfire, according to your precipient witness. Those are the things that investigators seriously have to consider, if not the prosecutor. So I, I agree completely, and uh, there was just a horrible failure in this case to do that. And uh, I hope not all small counties are like this. You see this going, 
you see this go on nationally, even in larger counties, because we read about these stories. The Trayvon Martin story is a perfect example. But I'll tell you something that muddied the water just a little bit briefly. The, the accused, the Vietnam vet, in the early 70s had been convicted of a 245, that's assault uh, with a deadly weapon in California, as a misdemeanor. He was originally charged with attempted murder, but he only did 90 days jail. Now, the offense went down 30, 35 years ago. There were no police reports anywhere in existence that we could find. But if you looked at the facts, and so, you know, the the, 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 vet, the, the veteran, who ultimately I think is the victim, never gets interviewed by law enforcement about this. But I interviewed him, and here's what occurred. He He's the victim of a home invasion robbery. And in the course of the home invasion robbery, he fends off the robbers, disables one of them, takes a knife from him, and then chases the other robber out the door and stabs him in the back as he's running away. Oh, I see. So, okay. so, it, it, gets, so it gets charged as an attempted murder, but when you see something like that resolve for a misdemeanor 245 and 90 days in jail, you know the prosecution just totally walked away from the case. I mean, uh, so the prosecution, of course, wanted to get that conviction into evidence. The judge found that it was remote. But again, you, you peel back the, the, the layers of that case and look at actually what went on. And, and it's not really an, impeach, an impeaching conviction once you hear the guy's story. The guy says, look, I'd been in jail. I, I got out from under a murder charge. My lawyer says, take the 245. You're not guilty, but take it. And he did. And, uh, but, but then you had in our recent, in our case, just this mountain of other evidence that, that was not enough for them to open their eyes and see it for what it really was. And I, I'm glad you brought up the Trayvon Martin case because I think that's an illustration, another illustration of the exact same phenomenon. Absolutely. Well, listen, when we come back, we're going to talk about your multiple homicide case, which I think is just fascinating. You're listening to forensic criminologist Dr. Ron Martinelli and Modoc County, California, District Attorney Jordan Funk on a thread of evidence. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health. Sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. In February of 2014, Cherie Rhodes, a 48-year-old grandmother and a member of a Native American tribe in northeastern California, smuggled two fully loaded 9mm handguns into a tribal court proceeding and commenced to slaughter her own family and tribal government. She shot her brother 
uh, between the eyes from a distance of about two feet, and then proceeded to empty both handguns into the assembled members of her tribal government, uh, trying to kill and ultimately killing a niece, a nephew, uh, the tribal administrator, and then seriously wounding, wounding two other nieces. That's the case of People v. Rhodes, amazingly resulted in a death verdict in California for a 48-year-old grandmother with no prior criminal record, a fairly rare outcome in California. That is an amazing synopsis of this case. So let's break this case down. What was your assignment at the time, Jordan? Were you with the district attorney's office then? I was the DA. I was down south in some training when I got the call that the crime had developed, had occurred. Uh, the way the whole thing came to light was one of the folks who had been in the, in the uh, tribal courtroom when the shooting began ran about 100 yards to our nearby police station, covered in blood, screaming, and told law enforcement what was happening. Uh, the call went out for deputies and city police officers. Within a couple of minutes, they had arrived on scene. And by the time they got there, the killing was all done. Cherie Rhodes, the perpetrator, was outside of the tribal building. This is in a little community of Alturas, California, a town of about 3,500 people. But she was outside with a knife in her hands, trying to kill one of the one of her nieces that she had wounded with uh, one of the nine millimeter handguns. Uh, the second handgun jammed, so she got a kitchen knife out of the a kitchen in the uh, in the tribal office building and went outside and was trying to work this gal over with a knife when law enforcement responded and, and took her into custody. And she made some really damning admissions at the time as well. Uh, what, was, what was interesting about the case, well, there were lots of things that were interesting, but it was an easy case to prosecute because we had the crime on video and audio. The, 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 tribal, uh, the, the tribal authority there in their office building they had a video camera in every room. And then because they were in a court hearing with a tribal judge, they had the tribal judge on the telephone and it was all being tape recorded. So all we had to do was match up the audio recording with the video. And we had the entire shooting uh, televised, literally. What was the defense uh, for, for, for uh, these homicides? Okay, so we charged capital murder, lying in wait, multiple murders and we sought the death penalty now the defense team uh, i frankly would have tried would have defended the case a little differently they they made in my opinion the mistake of getting greedy and trying to mount a a defense that would uh negate premeditation and deliberation they wanted to try and get it down to a second and the way that they did that was to put Cherie Rhodes on the witness stand and claim, well, number one, my tribal government has treated me very badly. Yes, my son-in-law may have embezzled a bunch of money, but effectively they excommunicated me. They were kicking me out of my tribal housing. They took away my quarterly per capita payment. And although I was angry about that, I actually came to the tribal court that day for my eviction hearing not planning to shoot anyone, but I loaded up a couple of nine millimeter handguns because I was on my way to Reno, California to sell them. And when I walked in the conference room, I just forgot that I had them in my pocket. So they came up with a fairly ridiculous scenario to try and get this first down from a first to a second. 
and then the other problem for them is that once Miss Rose got on the witness stand, she was so unrepentant and lacking in remorse that it really, I think, angered the jury. They were claiming that she had uh, a mental health disorder, and Ron, for the life of me, I can't remember it. It'll come to me while we're talking, but the gist of it was that it made her so that when she was the victim of a slight or of an insult, she tended to overreact, she tended to misinterpret, and she would make more of these slights than, than were really intended. And their theory that they tried to extract from that was that that gave her a loss of control. Well, if you look at, yeah, yeah, if you look at the, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, something like that uh, usually is a uh, persecutory disorder. Uh, Many times that that's also associated with schizophrenic uh, affective disorder, but also could be associated with bipolar disorder. Yeah, I wish I could remember the name of the disorder. And the diagnosis fit her perfectly. The problem was the the defense tried to take it a step further and saying, and basically say that it deprived her, not necessarily of free will, but it made her very much an automaton and, and very much deprived her of the ability to really premeditate and think rationally about what she was doing. Now, if you looked at the DSM, you looked at the actual diagnostic criteria, you looked at what mental health experts say about the offense, the added inference that the defense expert wanted you to make just wasn't there. It was just blatant psychological voodoo, I thought, uh, in an effort to try and get this down to a second. So in other words, uh, what she really was was just pissed off. Okay, she was just angry at everybody and got emotionally captured and just started blasting away. Yeah, and she planned the whole thing. The night before, she had her nephew uh, load up the, 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 the gun she had in her right pocket, which is her dominant hand. She had him clean it and then load it. And so the gun that had been freshly cleaned the night before is the gun she had in her right pants pocket. And when she pulled, pulled it out with her right hand and started firing, well, And then the other problem was, wait a second, you're on your way to Reno, California, three hours away to sell these handguns, and they're both fully loaded? Well, I was just going to say, that doesn't reconcile with her story that she was going to take the gun to a pawn shop and sell them. You're not going to walk into a pawn shop with a loaded gun. Of course you're going to unload that. I get the part about cleaning the gun before you sell it. That makes sense, but certainly not loading the gun. Right. And then who were you selling it to? I don't know. What's his name? (laughs) <laughs> uh, I don't know. I can't remember. I mean, <laughs> it was ridiculous. Wow. And then as she as she went further into her testimony, the venom and the anger and the rage at her tribe came out very strongly. Well, Jordan, tell me something. What kind of experts were used in this case for both sides? So it was pretty pretty garden variety for the prosecution. We did not use a mental health expert to counter the defense. We thought we could do that pretty thoroughly with cross-examination. We had your typical forensic experts there with regard to, uh, uh, you know, firearms, right, ballistics, stab wounds, sure. defense, defensive wounds on the victims, uh, and, the, and the ballistics and that sort of thing. But, you know, that's the great thing about it when you have a crime on video and audio. Right. Uh, it really lessens the, the need to explain every little piece of forensic evidence at the scene. 
because they can watch the movie. Right. And, and you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, that knocks uh, experts out of the box, uh, you know, quite a bit is the fact that if the jury can figure it out, you don't need an expert. And when you have really good forensic video evidence, then uh, why do you really need an expert? You know? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it really brought home to me the extent to which having the video and audio just takes so many things off the table that the defense would normally try to argue. Well, the prosecution didn't tell you about this shell casing. They didn't tell you about why this uh, firearm was found in this location. Well, you got the whole thing on video. Does it really matter? Uh, yeah, and you know what? Let me let me just uh, interrupt for just a second, just so that our audience is kind of clear. What I'm referring to is this case specific, because a lot of times, and of course I testify on video evidence all the time, it's absolutely critical to have video evidence, but it's also critical to have an expert to explain certain things of video evidence, because you might have video, but that doesn't mean that the eyes see what the video sees. And there's, you know, many other forensic uh, issues that come up with with media that's recorded. But in your case, the video seems to show a very deliberate uh, and planned and determined crime and uh, with probably a lot of evidence of excessive rage, maybe even more uh, more firing at victims than is necessary to even a- accomplish the crime of uh, a murder. Oh, it was horrible. And you, you make a very valid point. Some video evidence is, is, I don't want to use the word deceptive, but sometimes what you see on video doesn't really ac- accurately capture the nuances of an event. Exactly. And that, that's where an expert has to come in and explain. In our case, we didn't really have that. But the great thing that we did have is we had her crawling under the table after her second nine millimeter pistol jams. She retrieves a knife and then crawls under the table and is working over her nephew, trying to stab him to death. And he's begging for his life and fighting off her her attempts to stab, telling her to stop, begging her to stop. And you can hear her say, as other wounded people are begging her to stop, no, I'm not stopping till you're all dead. Wow. She says it in a very angry and in a very determined voice. Uh, so, you know, to watch her unload one handgun, then go to the second one, that jams, and then go get a knife and continue to work over the victims. That's powerful evidence of, of rage. And, and, and overkill. And what it does is it removes, at least in my eyes, it re- removes a defense that this was just a crime of passion. This was well beyond passion. There was planning, there was determination, there was commitment, and there was follow-through. And that's a heck of a lot different than coming into a bedroom and finding your wife in bed with another man and being so enraged that you uh, go over to the nightstand and pull out a gun and, and you shoot them both in a crime of rage you know, or a crime of passion. Uh, not that that isn't a homicide, but usually that factor of emotional capture and passion, especially if someone has no prior criminal history, uh, is a mitigating factor. Yeah, I agree. What earned her the death penalty was, now bear in mind, this is a 40-year-old grandmother with no prior record. So how in the world did the jury end up giving her a death sentence? Well, 
She lied blatantly on the witness stand. And then what came out in her testimony was the complete lack of remorse, the complete lack of regret. Effectively, she expressed by her, primarily by her emotions and the way she talked and also by her words, she didn't care. She was glad it happened. And we had a great jury, but I think when they were in deliberations, they had a hard time coming up with a good reason to spare her because she was completely lacking in any remorse. And uh, that was a big factor. Well, you know, let me ask you a question that uh, I'm not really uh, knowledgeable about, but you're the perfect guy to ask this question. So after the jury deliberates and they found that person guilty, then there's a sentencing phase because this is going to be a death penalty case, right? Potentially yes. a death penalty case. Can you just yes. take a couple of minutes and describe what goes on in something like that? Sure. So the the, the sentencing phase is where you were, is where you basically put on evidence to the jury to convince them that that death is the just and appropriate penalty. So that's where you put on some victim impact evidence. Uh, you have the victims testify about the effects of this killing on them, on losing family members, losing a father and an uncle, losing brothers. One of the one of the victims, a woman, young mother who was killed, was holding her three-day-old baby when she was shot through the chest. That's oh, horrible. Uh, yeah, she's the niece of the killer. So. You put on, of course, every case is different depending on what your aggravating facts or circumstances are. But in our case, really all we had was the impact of the crime on the victims. And uh, so that's primarily what our victim impact evidence consisted of. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you use the same judge for the, the adjudication phase, guilty or not guilty, as you do for the sentencing phase? And, and you know, is this person going to get the death penalty or not? Right. Same judge, same jury. Once we once we got our death verdicts in the guilt phase, excuse me, our, our murder verdicts in the guilt phase, uh, the jury recessed. We took a hiatus. It was during the holidays. We came back, I think, a week later and started up with the uh, with the penalty phase. And then, of course, if the jury returns a death verdict, the judge still has to make the final determination of whether death is appropriate. And that occurs at a separate sentencing hearing. In our case, that happened three or four months later. And the jury and the judge agreed with the jury's uh, determination of, uh, of death and also imposed the death verdict. Wow. Hey, uh, obviously, I know where uh, convicted killers that get the death penalty that are male are housed in the state of California, and that would be on death row in San Quentin. Where are the women because there's so few of them that get the death penalty, especially in California. Where are those women housed? Chowchilla. And frankly, Ron, I'm not certain how many there are, how many females there are in California on death row. Darn few. Oh, absolutely I, darn few. I got to tell you another thing that made a difference, I think, in this case, is although this, 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 this defendant was a woman, she didn't very much look like it. She was a very robust, heavy set masculine appearing individual and uh i i suppose you could make the argument that that didn't help her much uh in other words she's not some diminutive uh you know attractive looking she wasn't grandmotherly like, she type. wasn't fairly attractive like 
the woman that killed the boyfriend in the shower in Arizona. I'm trying to remember her name, right? There, there you go. Yeah, Jody or, or a Casey Jody. Anthony, right? Or a Casey Anthony that killed her child. Yeah, right. Casey allegedly, Anthony allegedly killed her child. Right, Casey Anthony and Jody Arias. Right. There you go. Thank you so much. See, prosecutors know that stuff. Hey. Jordan, thank you so much uh, for coming back on this show. I personally learn something every single time I talk with you. Uh, can we get you back on again on a thread of evidence? Love to, Ron. I enjoy it. Well, fantastic. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and our prosecutor of the day, Modoc County, California District Attorney Jordan Funk. You're listening to a thread of evidence on America out loud.